Johnny Goodrow goes to the bench. Eichel stays on the ice for the Sabres. Drives right. He has a lane for the shot. Scores! The Eichel Tower in overtime and the Cardiac Kids douse the Flames in Calgary. Make the final 4-3. Now Jack All right, the Sportscasters, settling back in here. Season 9 of the Sportscasters, Episode 2. Uh, delayed a little bit longer than I expected when I signed off at Season 1. Uh, was ready to fire right back the following week with an episode, uh, but had someone stiff on me. Wasn't very happy about that. Then I was sick. Then I was recording some stuff, and finally I'm going to put it up. I got three interviews recorded, and I'm going to put them up in two separate fields this weekend. Uh, the first one will serve as Season 9, Episode 2. And we got a great show for you. Richard Deitch from The Athletic, a longtime sportscaster supporter, friend of mine, is going to be on the show. We're going to talk a little bit about sports media. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, the upcoming Super Bowl, Tony Romo making a Super Bowl debut. We're going to talk about uh, some of the issues in sports media. Really great conversation with Richard. If you've ever listened to Richard and I, we have a pretty unique chemistry and back and forth. And it was a fun uh, time catching up with Richard. Also on the show, a debut, Justin Bourne from The Athletic. He played D1 ice hockey at the University of Alaska Anchorage, and he's currently at TSN and The Athletic. Does a bunch of great national hockey coverage. Uh, we're going to get an all-star break report on the NHL. I'm going to update the book club uh, with Beyond Broadway Joe, uh, a book that we kind of had thrown into the mix here. I'll give you an update on that. And then one last thing, I will close out with some thoughts uh, on the disastrous NFC Championship game from last week because I'm sure people who listen are curious what I think. Uh, then also this weekend I'm going to put up Season 9, Episode 3, which will be a shorter uh, podcast, although not really because the interview is about an hour long. I'm going to have Mike Harrington from the Buffalo News. We do about an hour on the State of the Sabres at the All-Star break. Recorded it last week. Nothing's changed in the interim. Um, but I'll present that sort of separately. There'll be an intro then I'll go into the uh, into the bulk of the podcast, and I'll probably do another one last thing on there. One interview, about one hour on the Sabres, and I'll put that as episode three in case someone is interested in Sabres. I know we have uh, somewhat of a national audience here. Uh, we'll do it that way. All right, I want to get this up, so I'm going to cut this short. Let's take a break. We will come back with Richard Deitch. <laughs> All right, our first guest today is a longtime friend of the Sportscasters podcast. We first touched base while he was a media writer at Sports Illustrated, but today he is at The Athletic doing much of the same and also doing some sports radio in Toronto. He's a great friend, and we welcome him back today. A warm Sportscasters welcome to Richard Deitch. What's up, RD? How you doing, buddy? Welcome back. Good. It's been a, it's been a long time. What's uh, Who leads these days in terms of most appearances? Lee Jenkins still or worth time? Yeah, I mean, Jenkins put it so far out there, but... You know he's retired, so you know he's he's moved into the uh, into the NBA front office world, and um, 
Wertheim was on the season premiere of uh, uh, season nine and uh, cut the lead to one. And Paul is here. Paul wants to help. Paul, you want to say hi to Richard? You got a co-host. So already more knowledge than the host. Say hi. Hi. That's, hey. that's Richard. Did you tell him what you were <laughs> What were you watching? I was watching the A-team. The A-team? And who's the, who's the boss of the A-team? Mr. Mr. T. Mr. T's not the boss. Who's the boss? Murdoch. Murdoch's not the boss. He's a crazy fool. You're failing the test here, girl. It's impressive knowledge, though, the A-team. Hannibal's the boss. You know Hannibal's the boss. Who drives the van? Mr. T drives. All right. Daddy's going to talk to Richard. You go watch the A-team, okay, baby girl? Oh, you sit over there. Okay. All right, R.D. She's part of the show now. She's one of the co-hosts. I like it. Yeah. Solid. She, sing, she was singing uh, Two Hearts by Phil Collins on the show recently. Wow. It's very old school. <laughs> I like it. All right. So anyway, uh, where were we? What were we talking about? Oh, you are Mr. Canada now. You, yeah, you yeah. moved to so Canada. Yeah, Jenkins is, Jenkins, is yeah. not to appear again. Worth good, good get for John, though. Yeah, worth Between 60 Minutes, SI, and Tennis Channel, he's not easy to get. Yeah, no, he's been uh, he's been harder and harder. But we talked a lot about 60 Minutes, which is pretty interesting, I thought. Yeah, and then cool. uh, obviously you're up in the upper echelons. Jeff Passan is up there. Jeff Perlman is up there. So we got a good core of uh, of of our people. And then you know, last year we did good with debuts. We had um, John Feinstein debuted. Matthew Berry debuted. Nice. Uh, yeah. So it was a good good year for sure. Good to see Passan. Uh, just got a big job at ESPN. Moving up. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it was really in- really interesting. Speaking of moving jobs, as I was talking to. Wertheim about SI and people come in and people go in and they're nervous about that sale I think I think they really hope that you know someone will buy it that just wants to spoil it you know but they know it could go another way too so I think it's it's just kind of up in limbo is that kind of why you left you didn't kind of want to wait out and see what happened just can kind of deal with the uncertainty of it or did you just want yeah, a new op- mean- opportunity or in, in part, a, a very big reason, uh, and it was very hard. It was easily the hardest uh, professional decision I've ever had to make. My, my probably one being the hardest one. But um, when I left, uh, Meredith had just taken over from Time Inc. And it was they had not even announced, I think, if I remember the chronology, that they were going to sell Sports Illustrated. But it was pretty clear that that was on their plans. And so there was massive uncertainty in terms of, you know, what's going to happen in the near term to buy it and who is Meredith going to sell it to? Because at that point, Meredith um, didn't have any kind of uh, responsibility, per se, to sell it to like, a place that wanted to invest in it or wanted to invest in journalism. I mean, they would have every right, you know, business-wise to, to sell it to the highest bidder. So there was a ton of uncertainty, and that was probably the biggest reason why – I ended up leaving, but I, I, you know, the athletic contacted me. I wasn't looking for another job. And had I, if I was still at Sports Illustrated, I I would still be happy. I love that place. I always will. But I really liked when I talked to the athletic, I really liked the people they had hired. They just were hiring like really good, interesting writers. They were putting out content every day. Uh, I was a subscriber that I just found really, really interesting. And it just seemed like a real interesting publication to be a part of. So, Combined with the uncertainty of Sports Illustrated, um, that's 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 the reason I decided to do it. Had I'll be very honest, had Sports Illustrated not been sold or 
I mean, in an alternative universe, Time Inc. was sort of still going on and, and still strong as an editorial company. I, I don't think I would have ever left. Let me ask you this about jumping to The Athletic, which I really enjoy The Athletic. I've been a subscriber for a long time before you were even there. And, But isn't there a level of uncertainty at a startup as well? Whereas, you know, they're spending a lot of money, probably more than they're taking in, in the hope that this idea will blossom into the future, I suppose. So is it that, yeah, there's some risk here, but the risk where I'm putting my chips is where it seems like the future is going, as opposed to staying at SI and taking a risk on a magazine, which, you know, to some people is already a completely dead medium, even though we know that's not true, but to some people it is. Is that kind of yeah. where you weighed the risk and reward? Well, uh, I, I guess I, I, I would say I looked at it a little differently in that I think every place, honestly, is an uncertainty at this point, maybe with the exception of like if you're in the print digital space, the Washington Post. But even going to work for ESPN now is an uncertainty where five, six, seven, ten years ago you would have thought that was a lifetime job. So I don't think there's any any safe harbor at all. Uh, but in terms of you know calculated risk in terms of who might have the higher ceiling between uh, the athletic and sports illustrated. I kind of honestly thought they were both equal. I, I thought like potentially if, if SI got like a heavy f- infusion of investment and, and was run by a steward that really believed in it, I thought they could sort of revolutionize what they were doing digitally and potentially have a great future. It's the same thing with the athletic. I mean, I, again, I thought they're, um, I thought their plan was really, really smart to go into cities to try to compete with newspapers that were clearly cunning staff and didn't seem to care about uh, their readers as much as they used to. So I would say that in terms of risk reward and who might have a better future, I think it was equal. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't like what the athletic was doing. I really liked it a lot. And obviously, I'm, I'm, I love what they're doing now that I'm there. But, um, but you know, the SI's future still could could be amazing it really just depends on who ends up purchasing that company that product and the 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 scary thing is i think for the people who still work there is that is still not resolved right yep i'm i'm coming up on a it's going to be a year pretty soon for me that i left there wow and it's still not resolved which is amazing to me i would have thought certainly sometime in 2018 it would have been sold somewhere but that hasn't happened yet let me ask you one more thing about this and then we'll move on because I asked uh, Wertheim a similar question. I asked him, I said, what do you think SI still does best? What is it best at doing? And I think, you know, we talked about feature writing and access, things like that. What do you think The Athletic does best in its infancy? In the first year or two of it, what do you think has proven to be the strength of The Athletic? Um, I think the strength of The Athletic is, um, one, it's um, it's it's comprehensive – high-level national coverage. So first and foremost, even though you are you are buying the athletic probably for a certain team or a certain city, where I think it's inevitably its biggest strength comes is from what you ultimately get from that subscription. And that's essentially a national newspaper of high-quality sports journalism. They may not push that, but that to me is the strength. Clearly, what its, what its strength is and what its selling point is is that it has hired or it has tried to hire best in class in each of the cities it's in to give you a, a combination of analysis, I think analytical writing, feature writing, and to 
take you beyond the traditional game story that sort of newspapers, I think, for a long time until recently, were providing their customers. So I think its strength is twofold. One, it has a massive strength in numbers in that it, it and I think we've only touched the surface on this as the athletic, is we just have, we have so many resources across the country now just in terms of writers and brain power. There's a lot of things we can do nationally that could be really, really interesting. And then in terms of sort of on a local advantage, um, you just generally speaking in most markets have have people who have really deep ties to covering that team. Again, in some markets, there are going to be the traditional newspapers that still have people um, who have better access or um, who've been covering teams longer. But by and large, in, in most of the markets, I feel like The Athletic has just done a great job of hiring. I just think they've hired really, really good people who produce really, really interesting copy on a on a daily basis. So it is, you know, we it, it it's not a perfect parallel to the national, which obviously a lot of people sort of romanticize. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, when I was growing up, because it's different. It, it's right. actually far more localized than the national ever was. National's more national than maybe even we are. But it is Again, I, I do th- the one thing that that I think bodes well for the athletic, and the one thing that always sort of gives me um, confidence that I, that I made a good decision was I've never heard anybody complain about the quality of the product, the the app, the infrastructure. Most of the stuff, the conversation is, you know, can this make? Will you get enough people to subscribe? But I've never heard any. I've heard very few criticisms of what people are reading. So the good news is like if you actually can get people into the into the site and and give people a shot the retention seems to be off the charts. So that that gives me hope because I think the product's great. The the real key of course is going to be you got to get you got to get the product in front of more people. I kind of uh, like how they've you know they've really spread yeah. out early with hockey. Done a really good job there and you know the Saber season's kind of been a surprise uh although it's turning into not a surprise I suppose. But you know, like, okay, it's game day today. We play Calgary. I haven't seen Calgary all year. Go to the Athletic. Who covers Who covers the Flames for the Athletic? I go in the app. I type their name. Boom. Four or five articles. Catch up. Know what I'm watching a little bit better. So I think that's what I really liked about it. You know, just kind of like the – not even as much my teams, the teams that I read about the most, but the flexibility right. to within this one place. And, you know, like some – you can do that. You know, you can just Google, obviously – Calgary newspaper and find the beat there, right? But you don't always know the quality. Where I'm kind of trusting, trusting the quality of the people they've hired, and know yep. that I got the right people. You know, I'm reading Russo or you know Vogel for in Buffalo, which was a great hire. I thought, or you know, Russo covers Minnesota or so, yep, Lazarus yeah. for Chicago or whatever. You know, I know Botch, these are top Botch guys for, for Vancouver, Myrtle, etc. For Toronto, you've hit on the thing again that I think we have only touched the surface on. And that's sort of marshalling resources that we have. And they've done a great job of this on hockey. But, for example, another example was one of the things they tried to do during the playoffs is they had every beat person who covers the uh, NFL teams sort of give you a breakdown of what to look for in that game. So, you know, you have – here's somebody who covered the Patriots every week, every day, giving you information. Here's somebody who covered the Chiefs every week, every day, giving you information. And you throw that all together – in one piece. So if you're in the, you know, if you're reading the Boston papers, you may get like, you know, a term, a terrific Patriots beat writer 
If you're if you're reading the Kansas City papers, you might get a terrific Chiefs beat writer. But the Athletic is doing something really unique in that it's giving you, it's educating you on both sides. And right. you know, there will be readers who'd be willing to do that to Google and to find the Kansas City Star and to look at it. But to have that high quality in essentially in the same app where it's sort of user friendly for you, I think is a big advantage. Yeah, and, I, and the idea that it's a team too. You know, I'm a, you know obviously being a big Saints fan, reading um, you know Larry uh, reading the Larry the Saints stuff. Hold he'll it. always make a point to say, hey, for the Rams coverage this week, these are the people we have here. You know, go here. Cause there's, a, there's a nice cohesion there with that. I don't know if that's unique to Larry or not, but I doubt it. Uh, but it's, I like, think it's, it's not, a good job. Yeah. The one thing I would tell you from sort of working in office there is I think we have honestly only touched that because, you know, we the 2018 was so much about hiring and getting sort of set in all these different cities. And I think a lot of 2019 is going to be just to figure out yeah, this is where the sort of the editors who work in-house, you know, names that you don't even know because they're not front facing. They're going to figure out ways to sort of just coordinate where you can marshal the resources and um, and the site is going to feel, you know, locally, the site will feel nationally. And once that happens, the athletics really, really going to be a good site because you're not only going to feel like, hey, I'm getting information about all my local teams, but I have this. You know, I have this amazing access to this other stuff that's just going to make me a more educated fan. Uh, one on that night, and then two, sort of for a season. It's almost like if DeFord had the ability to to put out the national every week, and every time he put it out, or every day, and every time he put it out, there was also these seventy other sections below it with each individual right. market. Which, you know, and to be fair, we're talking about the hiring. I killed ESPN on this show when they hired Mike Rodak uh, for their NFL. Uh, beat in Buffalo to bring a guy from Boston. That's never going to work. No one, no one has ever warmed up to Mike Rodak, who actually does a decent job, but no one was ever going to warm to him. He's always going to be a Boston guy, you know. He's always going to fight that. Um, and you know, there, you know, with the Athletic, you know, Colorado, for example, you're hiring a hockey writer. Adrian Dater is the Babe Ruth of Colorado hockey writers. He's been there since 1996, as long as the team has has every connection. You know, Joe Sackick right on down, and he doesn't get that job. So. You know, it's not always maybe about getting that guy, but that was one where I thought, just to be fair, a little bit of balance that I thought was a, was a miss. But yeah, and the one thing I'd say to you is, like, again, I, I'm not doing the hiring. And no, I'm not every, saying you are. And, no, but but I'm, what I would say is because obviously I write about hires and stuff, given my job. It, it, the, the the it is just like sports in that you're always going to have a subjective opinion on should this person have been hired. Should this person like, should you have signed this free agent? Should you have not signed this free agent? There's also, you know, I mean, it's very clear. We've also tried to hire some people in certain markets and their papers matched them. So, you right. you know, sometimes, sometimes you just get, you, you either get outbid or sometimes the person just really loves working where they work and they don't want to leave. It's interesting to see the rivalry it creates um, between the beats, which is great for a reader, right? Because, I mean, I definitely felt it here in Buffalo because they were very public about it. Harrington yeah. and Vogel and Graham, I mean, they were battling right out in public on Twitter and really created a rivalry uh, between the, the two brands. And I, I mean, that's been great for Sabres coverage. I feel like Harrington has stepped up his game a bit, you know, and the, the guys on the athletic, they're hungry because they're in, you know, in the quote unquote, unproven, you know, uh, medium having to lure subscribers. And I think that uh, they've done a good job. So overall, you know, I'm a fan of it. Like I said, I've been on it since the beginning and, um, Man, so just open that app. I haven't taken a five-minute dump since I got the Athletic. You open that app <laughs> on the toilet, you're in there for 25 minutes. We, we, we appreciate your service. <laughs> yeah. 
let's talk real quick. I can't do much football right now, Richard. I'm gutted to the core. Um, you know, and t- <laughs> last year uh, was a disaster, and you know, but at least we got at least the Saints got beat. And I remember saying to my wife uh, before the playoff game last week, not the Rams game, but the the for the division round. I said, well, you know, right. I said, well, you know, the, the the good news is is that it can't end any worse. Right, like like the the worst loss as a fan of the Saints is behind me, um, but of course that's not true. Uh, <laughs> the worst loss was waiting for me, uh, so I I can't do much. But we got to talk about Romo uh, because I thought he had already had his coming out performance at some point, but it really seems like while I was asleep pouting um, on Sunday and not watching a second of the AFC uh, Championship game, that he certainly if he didn't already have his coming out party, he had it Sunday. Um, he was the talk of, it was a, a great game by all accounts. And he was just as bit of a story as everyone else. And he's going to get to call us for a Super Bowl in a couple weeks. Um, so let's talk about Romo for a second, uh, because I've already read uh, people say he's the best caller man ever. That opinion exists already uh, for a guy in a second season. Uh, what about Romo and the job he did on Sunday and what awaits him? as he is about to call his first Super Bowl. Yeah, so first off, if anybody has that opinion, I, I, um, I think there's there's a lot of validity now to that opinion. And, um, he is in his second year, but he, he, he I feel, has been transformational and re- revolutionary in his call. Um, you know, coming the coming out party is an interesting term. That's I don't know if I would call it that because, you know, he is in his second year. He did get a ton of attention and a ton of praise his first year. What happened was that Sunday's game was far and away the most people who will have ever watched Tony Romo on a broadcast. Again, I realize last year's AFC Championship drew a ton of uh, viewers, but this this is statistically what they uh, like fifty five million or something. Yeah, fifty four. Far, far and away, the most people who will have watched him in the second most watched broadcast in over the course of three hundred sixty five days other than the Super Bowl. So the stakes were at its highest in terms of the broadcast. And what he happened to do in the middle of a, of a phenomenally entertaining game in the fourth quarter and overtime was twofold. One, he was extraordinary in terms of really being dialed in on what the Patriots were going to do on their drives. You know, I have to sort of go over this again, but he was essentially reading Tom Brady's decision-making, particularly to Edelman and Gronkowski, before it happened. So he's going to obviously, I think, wow some people in the audience. Like, you know, he's literally sort of calling decision-making before it happens, which I think always impresses people in football because you don't see it. The other thing is I think this was far and away Romo at his closest to his personality. He was excited and geeked up beyond belief. He was funny. He wasn't trying to be anything other than who he is. And for the last two years, he's had a unique ability to explain the game to people in a digestible way. And he's explaining the game at a very, very high level. And so you combine all that, you combine the fact that the game was incredible and off the charts. He's working with CBS's top team. Obviously, Nance is an iconic broadcaster. They put him on the A team, which means he has the best producer, the best director, the best audio people. And it just all came together. And um, and this is lastly where social media does help. Now again, I don't, I don't subscribe to you know anything going on, on social media means that's sort of reflective of the country because it's obviously we all know it's not. But when a broadcaster becomes part of the story in a positive way, it's usually the opposite. By the way, it's usually negative. 
But when a broadcaster becomes a positive part of the story on social media, that is very memorable. And all of those things sort of just transpired last Sunday. And, you know, and then you got people writing on Monday that Tony Romo was his biggest star of the game is Tom Brady and the Patriots. And so um, he 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 just had his best game in what what was absolutely the biggest game he's ever called. And so that's why I think you saw the, you know, sort of just a manifestation of all the positive things that have been said about Romo over the last year and a half. He's done two Saints games. The first one he did was his second game uh, last year against the Patriots. And it wasn't a great game. And I walked away noticing him and thinking, he's really good at this. He's going to do well. And then this year he called the Saints and Steelers game kind of later in the year. Uh, really a big game for the Steelers. Even a big game for the Saints who are still trying to lock down home, home field advantage. And it was a really good game. I thought played at a really high level. And the thing I noticed about him was just how much fun he was having. The enthusiasm he brought to the game. Just like he really created an atmosphere of like, okay, you're like you're not wasting your time here. Like this is a big deal. And and this is really fun. And, you know, wow, what you you know, like for me it was like, wow, my team is in this game that Tony Romo is just busting out on. Like he loves this. Like it really just created a different dynamic that I can't equate to anything else really. I I want to say Rick Jenneret, but it's different even than Rick. Well, that's yeah. One, it's different because Jenneret's obviously a local play by announcer. Play, yeah. Romo, he, Romo is really excited about football, and I think, yeah, I mean, not I think it is genuine. And I think one of the reasons John Madden was loved was because people he was able to engage the people across that television screen on how much he loved and was excited about the game. There are some people who kind of do that, and it's fake, and you just you just. You don't buy it because it feels like forced enthusiasm. But with Romo and Madden and, uh, you know, in terms of play-by-play, like guys like Kevin Harlan, it's like uh, I think Gus Johnson. Well, what do you think it, about Testatory? Because you know, it feels real. The enthusiasm feels real. Okay. All right. Interesting. Let me ask you this because you mentioned Madden, and I was thinking about him. And I think what we loved about Madden was the play would end, right? And he would break it down for us in a way that we haven't seen before. Now, Romo is doing the, the opposite, where he's breaking down the play at the line of scrimmage in a way we haven't right. seen before, um, which is really interesting. And I was thinking about that Brian Curtis column, uh, and really, I, I know you, you talked to talked about it on your podcast with, with some of the guys on the roundtable, and I know Trina did some stuff on it too. Uh, but he wrote about how coveted Madden was when Fox got into football and how much money he commanded. Is kind of Romo the next star on that level in terms of business? What do you know about the deal he signed with them, and what kind of money can he command when it's time for deal number two? Is he like the first real play-by-play star at the level of Madden in terms of finances, or am I forgetting someone else? Well, uh, you got to keep in mind how much money John Gruden was paid for Monday Night okay, Football. Okay, Gruden was ten million or something, right? Or I mean, I, I honestly don't know exactly, but it you know. Oh, that's what he got from the Raiders: ten million to leave. Yeah, I think I think Gruden probably in his last contract maybe closer to eight than okay Gruden ten. Uh, but again, I, I I'll be honest, I don't know the exact dollar figures, but it, it was high, okay. over five for sure. So money's not going to be an issue for Tony. Um, right. Here's I, I I I would say this, I would be beyond stunned. I'm not just saying stunned. Okay, hear my words here. I'd be beyond stunned if Tony Romo ever left CBS, and here's why. Um, one. 
keep in mind that he's a uh, former quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, and you could probably look this up, made whatever he made during his career, 50 million, 70 million. Yeah, he made a lot. He did well. I might even be low on this. Okay, so so he's already dealing money-wise where the guy, the guy doesn't need a game-changing, life-changing contract. I'm not saying he's not going to get what he's worth, but his money situation is already fine. He, he has repeatedly said since day one how important his producer Jim Rickoff was, how it, Jim Nance has become one of his best friends, not just his on-air guy. He's repeatedly said how important the comfort level has been with his CBS team, and that has made him feel like he could do this job. He is a loyal guy by his nature. So, I mean, just look at – he played for one team his entire career. I don't think having talked to him – and I can't say I know him well, but I've talked to him a couple of times. I don't think a gigantic crazy money offer from somewhere is going to be the driving force for him to leave CBS. I think if he was ever to leave, he would have to go to a place where he felt he could do his best possible work and he really liked the people he was working with. But he already has that, and CBS is going to pay him fair wage because they know what a star he has. So I don't see it. I just – even if – and I'm making this up. Even if like the Zone or Fox was like, Tony will give you $20 million a year, and they're not going to do that. But let's just throw it out there for hypothetical sake. I don't think he'd take that job just because they were giving him $7 million more million a year than CBS. So I would be stunned. Um, his, I do career think, earnings, his career earnings, by the way, were 127, 127 so million. So, so he's so, good. So they, uh, yeah, he's now, good. I think no doubt it's very beneficial for him that a story uh, got put out there. I saw Andrew Marshall in the New York Post write this, you know, story out there about his finances or his, what he potentially can make, I'm sorry, as a broadcaster. The fact that his deal is up, I think, in a year. So that's all beneficial to him. But CBS knows what it has. And I think more importantly, having talked to Tony, his comfort level and his enjoyment with the people he works with is so high. I, I can't see it. I, I I mean, I guess you should say never say never, but like if I could put something at 99.999, that's what I'd put at Romo staying with CBS. Let me ask you this, because if I was on the phone with a Patriots beat writer or a Rams beat writer, I mean, I know if I asked a Rams beat writer, what are the Rams going to do in the game? He'd say cheat more because that worked so well last week. But in terms of the broadcast, CBS as I'm talking to a media guy. What do you think we should look for in the broadcast from Romo, from Nance, and from the team in general? What do you think that they're trying to accomplish the most in this game, in this broadcast? Romo's first Super Bowl. What do you think uh, – what should we watch as we watch the game in terms of the broadcast? Well, first and foremost, what you, when you talk to these uh, producers and directors, the thing they say is they want to get every single important play perfect. They want to make sure they have every important major play of the Super Bowl every angle and camera covered so that they don't miss anything. So first and foremost, you want your production to be there. They're going to have um, some new technology. 8K cameras are going to be there. So some of the slow motion replays, you're really going to be able to see some crazy, uh, crazy stuff just given uh, the amount of you know high-end cameras that they have. In terms of Romo and Nance, um, you just want to be prepared and you want to know both teams cold, which I know they're going to they already know the Patriots. No broadcast team has seen them more than Nance and Romo. They have a great relationship, I think, with Belichick and that staff. And in terms of the Rams, you know, um, to- Tony has a great feel already for offense. And he's, I think, studied what Sean McVay has done. And I think he's going he's gonna to be ready and sort of he's going to know that team cold. And then Jim Nance has called Super Bowls before. You know, he's— Yeah, he called Super Bowl 44. The- 
It's my favorite Super Bowl. Moment's of all not going to be too big. Yeah, moment's not going to be too big for Nance. So no. I think what what they want is they just want you to come away from that broadcast one um, enjoying it, two thinking that they knew their stuff. But you call the game, as Romo and Nance have both told me. You don't you don't sort of at least internally put too much pressure on yourself. You know, obviously, more people are going to watch it than any of the game, but you call the game. You call the game in front of you. So more than Nance and Romo, interestingly enough, I think the pressure's on the producer and the director because the one thing you've really got to do in a Super Bowl is you have to, having talked to a lot of these producers, you have to get that crucial play. You have to get every angle and every replay nailed. The one thing you don't want is a controversial play in the Super Bowl that, where the viewer can't see it. And sometimes you get unlucky. You know, Even with the 50 cameras, you can't see it. But that's what all these guys sort of they pray for when they go to sleep is that when the when the moment comes, when the game's on the line, that they have the perfect shot, the perfect replay. That that's what they want. It can absolutely crush you this game too. I mean, I remember, you know, I don't ever remember hearing one negative thing really about Phil Sims. And then there was that 49ers Ravens Super Bowl, the one with the blackout, where he just had the day from hell. Yeah. And it seemed like after that game, that's when the Twitter accounts, dumb stuff Phil Sims says and the, it was almost like then he couldn't do anything right after that game. You know, it, it's kind of it's weird because I felt like it happened to the ESPN crew this year that once they got off to that bad start, nothing mattered. It did, there was no kind of climbing out of that hole. It's like once they put that on you, you're you're toast. It's like it's so hard to get away from that reputation. Then you know, like I don't know what you think about the ESPN crew. We can talk about them for a minute because it seems like they're going to come back, but. I mean, to me, it just seems like there's just no hope for them, that they've been branded something, and that's not good, especially well, Witten, the one, especially Witten, and I don't know how they climb out of it. Well, so the one thing there is that a lot of times what happens is um, it feeds upon itself. Once sort of the public determines a certain broadcast team or broadcaster is sort of not up for primetime, um, sort of the mocking really goes and particularly goes very heavy on social media. And then a lot of it is caricaturing in itself. You know, anytime Chris Berman would do the home run derby, you sort of see him trending. Uh, so there are things that just sort of play upon themselves. In terms of the Monday Night Football crew, they will be back. I think the only thing you're going to see change is McFarland will be in no the crane, booth. Right. Yeah, won't be on the crane. And they'll give that a shot. They'll give that a shot. I would expect – I don't know if the broadcast is going to be great next year. I, I, I would I think if they got to good, I think they should throw a party from themselves. But like logically speaking, it should be better in that it's Witten's second year. So the mechanics and all the new stuff is not going to be new anymore, which just makes you so much more comfortable in the booth. And then secondly, and this is just true, McFarlane's going to be next to these guys. So you're going to be able to see him. You can read body motion. Um, you know, if one guy wants to talk, you know, somebody can put their hand up. So you sort of get that cue. They did as good a job as they could to make it seamless with McFarlane on the crane. But, like, there's no replacing being able to see the person next to you. So I think the broadcast is just going to be – it's going to sound better just because the three guys can see each other. Uh, but I can't see them changing. I think they're going to give them another shot. They don't want to change again, having changed from Tarico to McDonough and then McDonough to Tessator and Gruden to Witten. I don't, they don't, I don't think they want another year of change. So I think they'll definitely get this year. And then they'll evaluate to see where the team is at the end of next year. One thing I'll say about Witten is he's kind of embraced it a little bit. He hasn't gotten defensive. He, you know, when he, when he screws up a uh, 
like an idiom or something, he'll just kind of go with it then in that order instead of going back. And that's kind of endearing to me as a viewer, this, that, you know, everyone was against him, but instead of kind of, I don't know, maybe it's just his makeup as an athlete who played at such a high level. He kind of didn't crumble under that. He kind of just embraced it and had a little bit of fun with it. And I think that helped them at the end of the year. I kind of saw him climbing out of it a bit. I don't know about you. Yeah, well, I think for one thing, I think uh, former athletes are definitely helped by um, having been criticized and had, dealing with this. This is it's a different kind of criticism, but I think you know they've sort of at least been used to it. And Witten has been smart. The best way to handle all this is always to be self-deprecating, yeah. sort of acknowledge it, knowing it when you make a mistake. That that you can, the one thing that Romo sort of already understands, just really tip your hat to him. He already knows that you can't get 100% of the audience to like you. And by the way, probably no broadcaster has more people liking him right now than Tony Romo. But even he knows that, like, I can't win everybody. So I have to sort of just be myself and try to get better. And that's what Witten should approach it. Witten should be like, I know there's going to be people who never would think I'm good. I know there's going to be people who don't like me. But I'm going to just keep going out, trying to improve. And I'm going to be me. And I'm going to sort of let the chips fall where they'll be. But yeah, I think it's very smart to like let the public in and to let the public know that um, you're trying to get better or that you can make fun of yourself. Romo did a great job. You know, Romo yesterday um, was funny. He tweeted out, he followed a Bryce Harper tweet and sort of, you know, tweet, tweet, you know, tweet about Bryce Harper. You got to come to, you know, I'm predicting you to go to the Rangers. That's, you know, that's Romo being self-aware of all the people who were praising him about his uh for you know forecasting stuff that's good and Witten's Witten was smart a couple of times this year on social media where he sort of acknowledged and recognized that he made a mistake that's very very smart the the worst guys are the people who are just so serious and just never sort of can admit that that that, that they've failed because we've all failed the sports guest this year finishing up with Richard Deitch from The Athletic didn't screw that up I was worried I might uh <laughs> Also, he's up in Canada doing some sports radio, which I don't think we're going to get to that today. We'll talk about that next time. Let me ask you this. Right. We'll kind of get out of here on this. It's 2019 now. I know we've all still writing 2018 on our checks, but it's 2019 now. You do a lot of great podcasts, roundtable things where you discuss the, uh, the, the it topics in sports media. If you had to predict ahead, what do you think are some topics that are going to come up over and over again this year? Is it the uh, regional sports network things, the... Uh, evolution of ESPN's coverage of the NFL and the NBA? Is it going to be what? What are the things that are going to come up most in those discussions, do you think, in 2019? Well, first and foremost, obviously, sort of the state of the NFL is going to always come up. Uh, viewership health, um, the game's health itself, uh, you know, from the uh, head trauma issues to stadiums, et cetera. The NFL, as a media story, will always be well, I shouldn't say will always, but will certainly be dominant in 2019 and and will remain the dominant story for many, many years to come. Uh, in terms of really getting a little more inside baseball in terms of uh, my world, I think for sure it, it'll be the streaming services, uh, the ESPN Pluses, the DAZN's, uh, Bleacher Report Live. It'll be their continued growth. And as we get closer to some of the rights deals coming up, will some of these places make massive bids to try to take some inventory away from the networks and ESPN proper. So I would think, um, you know, as the year goes on, we'll be talking about that. Uh, the WWE heading to Fox sports one is kind of interesting to me. I think that's something, uh, we'll talk about. We'll see 
will be interested. I'll be interested to see as the season goes on where the NBA viewership is. It's been down this year, but um, there's a lot of lot of lot of lot of things to go in that league, and the um, the play the the playoff race should be tighter come March and April. So the regular season games should be of more interest because Golden State's not running away with the West, and obviously there's really nobody running away with the East. You know, Boston's obviously not as good as I think people thought there'd be. So that's one to watch. And then obviously if it gets to the finals again with the Warriors, be interesting to see what the viewership is is there. I'm trying to think if there's anything else in sort of terms of talent or anything, like a massive talent. You know, Roma won't be a story, I think, for the rest of twenty nineteen after after the Super Bowl. Um and is anybody sort of retiring or anybody blowing up? Not that I can think of off the off the top of my head. So the, at least off the top of my head, those are some of the things. Yeah, I mean, regional sports networks for sure. It'll be a story, but it's very still much a sports business story. I don't know. Yeah, somewhat niche. It, it, it impacts you as a fan depending on what's going to happen to your regional sports network. But I, I don't know how many fans are sort of thinking about it in terms of a national um, in terms of a national play. But, yeah, those are some of the things that uh, that come up, in particular like the zone, which seems to have an endless amount of money. I'll, I'll be curious if they try to – they try to go after um, some more sports rights this year or whatever comes available. All right, let me get you out of here on this. Let me ask you about RD in 2019. What, what kind of, what are some goals you have as a, as you increase your profile at the athletic, as you continue to do sports radio, as you work on your podcast, what are some things that you, uh, that you want to change, keep the same, evolve in 2019? Sleep. My goal is sleep. To sleep more. A well, our kids are getting older. We have kid, RD and I have kids about the same age, but yours are yours come in a pair. Um, I come in. I have twins. Right, um, yeah. To be to be honest with you, twenty eighteen was such a year of change for me that if I had any professional goals in twenty nineteen, it's just to sort of like, yeah. I mean, it's just sort of just to just to continue to hopefully do good work in all the places I'm working at, and to just continue to establish myself more in my new city in Toronto. Um, that would be. You know that would be that would be one, but um, yeah, I don't I don't have any sort of overarching professional goals because last year my professional world changed so much uh, that this year I, I'm just hoping to sort of I don't even know if it's the right word, but sort of just you know consolidate and do the best work I can for the for the multiple places I'm working at. Have you gotten used to the meat there in Canada? Growing up, uh, growing up, like growing up, I always, you know, would spend a lot of time in Canada all the time. I, you know, I live on the border. Like when I was 12, it wouldn't be unusual for my family to, oh, let's have Chinese food tonight. Let's go to Fort Erie and get Chinese great. food there. Right. You know, that yep. was like pre 9-11. But the one thing I always hated about Canada is all the meat tastes kind of like sausage to me. Like I never liked really? the meat there. Like something about the preservatives or something about the way they serve meat. I always hated the meat in Canada. No? That is interesting. I have not noticed. You haven't noticed it- that? major difference the one big difference i mean uh and the then listen the goofy obviously toronto is an amazing city you can get any kind of food you want food is great one big difference obviously from coming from new york pizza is very different here in in canada than than the states oh yeah that's the little caesars like it's good yeah it's a yeah, weird oh, it's, brutal it's a weird world in that sense uh but yeah i mean you know the i'm actually kind of impressed just like uh you can get really great fresh fish you know one thing about toronto this is where it's very similar to new york to me is there's so many different kind of communities and you know whether it's um uh like the oakvilles and mississaugas yeah, and, yeah. you know but if you want if you want to sort of go to a place which is a sort of heavy greek population heavy turkish population heavy chinese population heavy oh, okay. thai population, yeah Indonesia, 
that you basically can get any kind of cuisine from anywhere in the world because it's such an Im- it, it's such an immigrant hub um, that it, it, it very much reminds me of New York in that there are just different parts of New York depending on where you are. You can really get any kind of cuisine. So Toronto's been um, pretty amazing for that. But that pizza is the one thing here that is it is inconceivably different than than New York. I always took for granted how big Toronto is because I lived so close to it, you know, yeah, and good. it's there. So I always took for granted, like, what a huge international city it is. Like, it's yeah, literally I mean, the biggest like, city in the country. There's, like, Toronto sort of proper, but then there's a GTA, as you know, which is humongous. Oh, now Richard's kids are going to be on the podcast. Look at this. It's that's kids that's your kid. Oh, that was my kid? Was she echoing? I thought. Yeah, that was her. That oh, was mine. Oh, okay. She echoed Richard's back good. on me. Oh, all right. Well, that would have been fun. All right, man. Yeah. I will let you. I will let you bounce. Thank you for doing this. I'm not going to yeah. let you stay away for a year again. I'm going to need you in about six months, but I will hit That's, you up. I'm Thank like, you. Uh, this is my Brock Lesnar imitation. You know, come back every couple months. Right. For the big, the big pay per views, the big shows. Exactly. All right, man. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank Richard Deitch for being on the podcast today Always great to have Richard on I actually went to a Bob Seger concert And said goodbye to Bullet Bob who was playing his uh, last concert in Buffalo. For more of my thoughts on that, Season 9, Episode 3, One Last Thing, the Bob Seger Concert Review. Uh, Beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl that team that changed football by Bob Letterer. Uh, I mentioned in Episode 1 that I had gotten this, a note from Bob and that he was sending a book, but I didn't see the book and I, I didn't know if we'd go forward. Well, he did send the book. Again, it's called Beyond Broadway Joe. The Super Bowl Team That Changed Football by Bob Letterer. And it's actually basically a book about everyone besides Joe Namath and uh, the the 69 Jets, the Super Bowl three winners, and, and kind of uh, what else went into the guarantee, the, the players that helped back up Joe's mouth. I actually watched the HBO documentary called Namath uh, sometime since the last podcast. It was really good. Uh, Joe Namath is really interesting, and hopefully uh, the players around him are as interesting. I'm looking forward to reading this. I'm going to get into it in the next couple of weeks, and we'll have Bob on. Uh, so we're going to start the Season 9 Book Club journey with Bob Letterer's Beyond Broadway Joe, uh, the Super Bowl team that changed football. All right, I'm kind of rushing through to try to get this up, so that's it for the Book Club update today. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll speak with Justin Bourne. we are the That is too good. Our next guest played hockey for UAA, Alaska Anchorage, and is making his sportscaster's debut as a national writer for The Athletic. A warm 
Welcome to Justin Bourne. What's up, Justin? How you doing, man? Thanks for thanks for being on the show. Yeah, not a problem at all, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, I was looking over your uh, got a really interesting background. I feel like it seems like for a young guy, you've been everywhere already. BCHL player, college hockey player, working video for teams on TV, writing for the Athletic. You've really done a lot already. Let's start with uh, let's start with being a Canadian kid and taking the college hockey path. I'm just curious. Um, the last couple of years, we've finally seen some college hockey players break through on the World Junior Team. Uh, Makar played last year. Bowers played this year. Uh, there's been a few others. Obviously, Jonathan Taves played um, way back. But it, it's been difficult um, for for the junior, for the college hockey players to break through. Uh, and, and even on the U.S. side, it's been a little bit difficult for the um, like the U.S. hockey team this year only had three players from from Major Junior. Um, so it seems like different philosophies on the opposite sides of the border sometimes. Uh, tell me a little bit, just briefly, about you as a player and why the college hockey path made the most sense for you. I think at some point you have to be realistic with yourself. And, um, you know, I was a decent, um, you know, youth hockey player, you know, minor league player uh, as a kid. Enough, but, you know, I played in sort of a small town, uh, well, it's not a small town, but Kelowna, BC is, is not huge either. And, I never made any of the top-tier teams. And kind of as I got a little bit older, uh, I guess I was a bit of a late bloomer. And started to see that maybe there was some potential that I could do more beyond, you know, once I got to, to be around 14, 15, 16 years old. And, um, you know, I never really saw the NHL as a realistic goal. Like, the path that these guys are on who make the NHL are so good, so young, it's it's scary to think about. And I wasn't that, so... It was like, well, okay, you know, I love to play. I'd love to play more. And what could I gain from this? And I knew I wanted to go to university. And so that, that kind of became my goal at a young age. If I could get a college scholarship, you know, that would validate all the money and time my mom and dad put in, uh, into it and, you know, buying my gear and taking me to the rink and, and all that other stuff. So uh, I set my sights on college hockey. And, you know, I had some uh, unique opportunities. Um, you know, you know, looking at my university options, I had about five or six scholarship uh, options, and I chose to play for a team that wasn't necessarily the best. In fact, they were—I'll just say it—they were bad. But it was in a division that played great players, and I thought that gave me a chance to develop. And uh, over my years in the WCHA, uh, I played Jonathan Taves and uh, Kyle Opozo and Blake Miller and uh, Thomas Vanek and, and a lot of players who went on to great success in the NHL. So it was a worthwhile experience for me all around. Very happy with the, the path I took. What were some of the other officials you took? What's that, sorry? Some of the other official visits. You said you had about five offers. What? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I went down to the University of New Hampshire, which would have been awesome. Um, Colorado College, Niagara University. Uh, talked uh, extensively with Bowling Green. Um, you know, at the time they were even Quinnipiac a little bit at the time they were all differing levels of, of power, I guess I should say, in terms of what they meant, uh, you know, Quinnipiac is, is a big school. And at the time, um, the, the joke was, uh, it was called quit and pack it up. Like if you took your career there, that was where you just quit and pack it up, man, it's over. So, you know, things have certainly changed with a lot of these schools. Uh, the one I really wanted to go to and no offense to the university of Alaska, which I ended up going to. Uh, was New Hampshire, which is a really great school in Hockey East. Um, but sometimes it just comes down to what you think your opportunity is going to be. And, of course, money's involved, too. And I had a full-ride opportunity from Alaska. And at New Hampshire, I 
wasn't going to matter. I wasn't going to get the opportunity to have success. And I played top line minutes um, at Alaska from my freshman year on. So I, I gave myself the best uh, possible chance, I think, to, to have the most success in my career after that by not going to New Hampshire. One more thing on this, and then uh, we'll move on. One thing I thought was pretty interesting listening to you talk is it seems like you kind of viewed this all as college hockey made the most sense for you because of where you lined up as a prospect. Do you think that if you were someone who you felt projected out to an NHL career, you would have played major juniors? And do you think that that, that, kind, of, that kind of thought is kind of fading a little bit, whereas you know, maybe 10, 15 years yeah. ago – that was that. If you you felt like you were being an NHL player, you had to play junior, major, junior. Where now, you know, it's almost up to forty percent of the NHL is college hockey players, uh, so not quite as important. I mean, we have guys like Jack Eichel play college hockey, and then you have undrafted guys play college hockey. It's like the the gamut of of who plays it now is, is a lot wider. It seems like. Would you agree with that? Yeah, the way I see it is just sort of uh, where you're at in your development path, like. You know, some players are so good, so young, as I was saying, just that, you know, Major Junior makes a lot of sense for them. They're playing, you know, an NHL-style North American pro hockey at a young age. I know it's not technically pro hockey, but it's very, it's replicated, right? They're building them to be familiar with um, NHL hockey. So, yeah, if you're a special player young, Major Junior makes a lot of sense. But, you know, a lot of people need more time and more seasoning, and that's okay. And, you know, the, it seems to me that the development path that, uh, you know, Hockey Canada, maybe uh, the U.S. is similar to this, is that they're trying to create superstars. And the superstars need to be pushed through the systems fast and play above levels and dominate levels that their age dictates they shouldn't and, and all that. But, you know, when you look at of guys like, I don't know, I just think of like a Tyler Bozak. You know, he's added a lot of value to a lot of hockey teams and, well, mostly Maple Leafs teams, right, and made a lot of money at it. So it depends what your goals are. You know, I never was going to be Sidney Crosby. So for me, it made a lot of sense to have more time, more opportunity, more years to work on my game, develop, get bigger, and and see what I could become. So, yeah, it's just, to me, where you're at in your career when you're making these decisions. And Jack Hughes is really interesting, basically, and what you just said, too, because, I mean, he's a, a potential first overall pick, probably not worse than second overall pick. And I know last year he basically had done almost everything you could do at the development program and wanted to, I think, graduate early and play at Michigan with his brother, but couldn't cram in enough academics to to do that and just decided to go back to the development program anyway. Um, so I think he's been a really interesting case of a top-end player who has kind of stayed firm in the U.S. side of the border and um, you know, not rushed himself into playing somewhere maybe where he didn't feel as comfortable, just because maybe it did make the most sense, because there wasn't necessarily anywhere for like when he didn't when he when he found himself not Michigan not being an option this year, I was really surprised he didn't end up pro somewhere or you know playing. I, I guess I'm sure he's an OHL kid. I'm guessing, um, but uh, yeah, he's been interesting. I think. Yeah, uh, you know, those options vary uh, a great deal. And when you're that young and that talented, uh, it has to be really tough to make those choices. And, you know, just going back to my own experience, it was like, wow, I can play against Jonathan Taves, you know, and, and potentially get better. That, that for me, was what made sense for, you know, for Hughes. My God, I mean, the, the world's his oyster. And, 
you, know, you see people saying right now, uh, you know, I'm not sure if he's, you know, if he's quite ready, if he's physically strong enough to play at the NHL level. You know, whether that's true or not, he has so many options. You have to kind of love what Austin Matthews did by going overseas and playing against, uh, you know, older men and seeing if he could stand up, uh, you know, to that size of player. So uh, very interesting to see what path uh, Hughes ends up taking. You kind of broke into the uh, media side doing some freelance writing stuff with Puck Daddy and a few other locations. Uh, when did you decide that covering hockey was – and I don't really mean like, oh, I'm not going to be a player. i got to cover like I, – I, I sort of mean what was it about – what was the point and, and, and what, was the, what was the path you were kind of carving out for your side when you said, all right, I'm going to start doing some hockey news, some Puck Daddy, some USA Today, kind of break in right here, right there. What, what, were, you, what were you thinking at that point? Well, a lot of it was triggered by a, a pretty significant incident in my life. You know, I took a slap shot to the face, um, you know, and so I was on, on the couch for three, you know, two to three months in wires, basically. So, um, you know, essentially what I had to do was kill time. And so I was writing emails back and forth with my uncle, who was a uh, sports uh, writer at the time. And he was like, you know, the emails were long. I had time and I was drinking liquid Percocet and feeling great. So I wrote really long emails. And he was like, he was like, this is really interesting. Like, you should start a blog, like, just to kill time while you're sitting on the couch. And, um, you know, so I did. I started a blog and started writing. And I guess, you know, it wasn't even my own decision, uh, decision so much as I learned that there weren't a lot of players um, who were actively playing, who were, you know, literate. And I had been through years of uh, university. So people had uh, interest in what I had to say. And obviously it didn't hurt that my dad and my, my then fiance, now wife, uh, wife's dad is a Hall of Famer. So people had interest in what I had to say. So it kind of took off pretty quick. And um, I started to think about transitioning. You know, I was realizing I probably wasn't going to make it. I had another NHL opportunity uh, for a tryout after that, but you got to be honest with yourself. And I, I wasn't going to make it. I, I was, I wasn't good enough. And uh, I didn't want to let hockey go because you have a lifetime of education and particularly in myself growing up around an NHL family, my entire life has been immersed in the game. So I thought it'd be a shame to just go sell, you know, I don't know, washing machines or something. Like I felt like I needed to use my education and then the media side, uh, seemed to allow me a little bit of a leg up on other people just in terms of, you know, the information I have and the knowledge I have. Did you kind of feel, I know like when my brother was picking his schools and ultimately picked Yale, you know, his thought was, you know, you want he wanted to set up both ends. You know, if he wasn't going to make it in hockey, he wanted to have the best chance to make it without hockey. And then when he ultimately did graduate as a senior and he had broken his leg his senior year, he had plenty of opportunities at the lower levels, but he's like, I just don't want to ride a bus as a, you know, with a Yale degree in my pocket. He's yeah. like, I'd rather just get started. Was that kind of how you felt too, that you didn't, to you, it was like, if you're not going to make the top levels, you didn't really want to grind it out and do that to your body in some of the lower level leagues. Well, that's, that's a great, great question. And that, I, I think honestly, man, that is the hardest question that players who are playing the minors have to ask themselves. Right. And they ask themselves that all summer, they ask themselves that all season, when things aren't going well in particular, you're going, what am I doing? And if you, you know, if you finish university, particularly if you're walking out of Yale and you're whatever, I don't know how young your brother was when he went 23, when he's finished, let's call it. When he's walking out of there roughly around that age, um, you know, let's say he goes and plays in the minors for six or seven years and doesn't make it. He's no further ahead in terms of starting his 
life after hockey than if you start at 23. So it's, it's almost, you're convincing yourself it's wasted years, right? Like, so to me, I was, you know, I got hurt. Um, I think it was my, it was actually my 26th birthday the day it happened. And I was like, I can definitely play at this level and maybe above until I'm 28, 29, 30. But then what? You know, it's the same thing. You've got to start fresh in your life outside of hockey at some point. And I think that's, you know, an intelligent, uh, intelligent decision at some point and just being honest with yourself and saying, all right, I'm going to have to make a name in media. And, you know, for me now, it's been, you know, 10 years. And had I started five years later, you know, I don't think that I would have had the success I've had on the media side had I waited that long. So I'm very happy with the decision I made at that time. It's a fascinating thing, you know, like you said, just weighing those options. Like you said, every year in the weight, in, every summer in the weight room, do I want to do another side of this? You know, or should I pick up that call to the finance guy or whatever who said, you know, come interview with me? It's, it's really an interesting thing. We're talking with Justin Bourne here. Uh, Justin writes for The Athletic, uh, among some other things in media. Let's transition over to the NHL a little bit. That was fun, kind of getting your background and talking a little bit about some of the issues uh, facing young players coming up. Uh, we are halfway through the NHL season, and I'm just curious. Give me two or three things that have sort of fascinated you the most about the season so far what has just kind of jumped out to you and made you interested in this first half of the season a couple things well I, I think the you know number one the biggest thing for me is how much the game has changed like how quickly from say five years ago to three years ago to now where you know, the value of toughness used to be you know so it's such a you know premium and everyone you know the, the maple Leafs themselves three or four years ago here in Toronto, you know, having Orr and McLaren and Jay Rosehill and all the rest of those guys. So that went away, and then everyone kind of made this collective decision like, you know, tough guys don't matter. You know, it's okay. It's a skill game now. And I really thought it was awesome. And this is, I'm the only person who thinks Tom Wilson is awesome, uh, I think, right now, outside of capital spans. But it was awesome to me how he changed games en route for them to win the Stanley Cup. Like, Oh, yeah. Like, if you have a guy who can play who's also super tough, uh, there's still an inherent value in that. And, you know, the league is such a copycat league, and we see it uh, it sort of bounce back and forth. You know, what are people having uh, success with? And this year we're looking at the trade deadline, and, you know, names like Michael Furland and Wayne Simmons are at the top of the list because everyone's looking for someone who can score and also be tough again. So uh, I just think the most interesting dynamic to me has been the way the league has shifted. And then can you beat that? Um, which is what the Toronto Maple Leafs here again, in Toronto are trying to do with, you know, the, the Mitch Marners of the world and really without any physicality to their team at all. Um, I'm interested to see how that uh, duality sort of plays out in the end. Let's talk about the Leafs real quick. What, what do you think about the Nylander situation and what's gone wrong with him since he's come back from, from his holdout and signing that contract? Is it the case of a player who, got his, his head so far into something that he normally doesn't and got so far away from his routine and his rhythm that he just hasn't been able to find it on the ice? Or what do you think's going wrong with Nylander being there firsthand and watching him play? I think it's a lot of different things at once, which is, you know, tough for people to accept. They want that clean answer. Like, once he gets in shape, he'll be fine or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Certainly, this thing is a big thing, uh, just getting back to game speed and, when you jump into, you know, I really compare it to being on a treadmill at the start of the season. You know, starting training camp, thing warms up and you kind of get moving. And 
himself up to a full run um he jumped on well the thing was you know it was flying and so that's not not easy but also you know suddenly there's a lot of pressure on you when you're making an entry-level contract level of money and anything you contribute as a bonus people love you all of a sudden you make seven million a year and they're going you know okay you know we, we need to see it every night we, we have expectations now and um and then when things don't start particularly well I'm sure, well, I can't speak for him, but I would get in my own head and start to, you know, as I say, squeeze this desk and start to get, you know, feel the pressure and overthink things. And I really think it's just been a snowball of negativity. I don't think he's any different than what we initially thought he was. I think he'll score a bunch. Uh, I thought he looked great last game. Um, I think he'll get comfortable and things will be fine. But I think the easing back into to everything has been very hard for him. Sportscasters here with Justin Bourne from The Athletic senior writer there Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Atlantic division it's been really good this year obviously the Sabres have sort of had the wind out of their sails the last month or so uh, so that maybe helps a little bit but one thing I know for sure is that when we get to the uh, the spring there's going to be two teams in round one with a lot of points playing Uh, how do you see this division breaking down a little bit we got at least you know at least Tampa Bay Boston Toronto in the playoffs and Montreal and Buffalo could both make it or neither, or one of the two. Uh, what do you think about the uh, the division and kind of how it's going to play out the rest of the way? Well, it's kind of depressing a little bit if you're uh, a Leafs fan looking at it because you're almost certainly slot in two, three uh, playoff series. You know, Montreal and Buffalo, uh, you know, they both made nice strides this year and exceeded expectations to some degree. I just don't see it. I just don't see them on the same plane. So I still sort of see that Tampa. Uh, Toronto and Boston is the one, two, three. And then, to be honest, if I'm looking at it, I don't think that Toronto's good enough to beat Boston in the seven-game play- playoff series. And maybe that is mentality. It just seems like Boston absolutely has Toronto's number. Um, their top line it just can't be contained. And David Pasternak absolutely owns the Leafs right now. Uh, yeah, for whatever reason, it just seems to be a major mental hurdle there. That said... I do expect there to be changes, um, you know, coming up uh, before the deadline. Uh, you know, I read a rumor today about Wayne Simmons maybe going to Boston. I know Toronto has interest in a uh, defenseman and maybe a left winger. Um, so it's really tough to sort of prognosticate what's going to happen. But I think everyone knows where they stand, and so they stand very closely. And whoever makes, you know, the, the best improvement over the next month here probably has the best chance. So to me, it's as interesting as, well, maybe not as interesting as a playoff round, but I love to watch how teams shape themselves, uh, prepare for that playoff round. You know, 1993 is a number up north that, that looms large as the Cup hasn't been there since then. And you look across the country and there's three of the top, I don't know, 12-ish teams in the league, maybe even better than that, that are up in Canada with Calgary, Winnipeg, and Toronto this year. How important do you think this spring is for, for Canada? Is, is that something that, that bothers Canadians that, that the, Cup, the Canadian team hasn't won a Cup since 93 or... Uh, you know, <laughs> you, see, you know what? I think that's actually a major uh, sort of misconception in the U.S. Just because, you know, because in, so many Canadian players. Were... Well, no, not not so much that. So oh. much as the Canadian teams hate each other more than anyone else. It's okay. like when you have, <laughs> right. you know, like rivals that are uh, sort of associated, like you know, Pittsburgh and Philly or the Islanders and Rangers. You know, by principle, just location, they hate each other. Like, logically, you're all New Yorkers. You should all like each other. But no, it's that location thing. And um, being Canadian is sort of a binding identity. We're all Canadians. So 
I want my Canadian team to be better than your Canadian. You know, they, we're not proximal in the slightest bit, like by pure location. However, there is that shared identity. So I would say, you know, more people from Vancouver hate uh, Toronto than any other fan base going. Like, there's just no, like, if Vancouver wins, no one in Toronto is happy. So it'd be nice to see Canada win the cup a little bit more just for the good of Canadian cities and. But when it comes to pure fandom, I think most teams fans think that other Canadian teams can go screw themselves. Yeah, and I see that right. I mean, you got the Battle of Alberta. You know, you have Calgary and yeah. Vancouver. People still trolling each other over overtime goals from the '80s and the '90s in the playoffs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, that '94 Calgary, Vancouver was a three straight overtime losses to go from three one to out for Calgary, and then they had to watch. Vancouver. I think Martin Jelena scored them all too. It was devastating. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Bray scored game. <laughs> Bray scored game seven on that beautiful regroup. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah that yeah. beautiful regroup, and then the breakaway. A uh, couple more things, and I'll let you go. Um, generational superstars, right? That's one of those words that we toss around almost every draft. Um, and whether or not you believe all these players who've come in, in the last few years are generational superstars or not, there's certainly a really great influx of young players in the league. Uh, you know, stars like Matthews and McDavid and Eichel and Lane and Marner. And I mean, we could go on and on. What do you think about these young players in the league and kind of how, like you mentioned earlier, how they're kind of changing the game a little bit and the way it's played and um, how important you think these guys are to the growth and development of the game? Well, they're it. They're central to it. You know, part of me wonders if they aren't too talented uh, you know, that it kind of, your casual fan can't appreciate them. Like, they're seriously, they're so good. It's it's tough to explain to people, uh, particularly the way they shoot the puck, you know, the the release and the way it comes off their stick and their, their poise, their, their confidence that is so far beyond confidence. It's blatant arrogance, like, to play the way these guys play and make the decisions they make. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. So, that's going to be a thing that draws people to hockey is, is watching that. And I hope people can see just truly how special they are. And uh, I think you see a lot of the guys who are superstars in the NHL who are on the other end of being superstars. Patrick Martin comes to mind right off the top is they see these guys and they're like, Oh, Oh, like that's different. Like it's a different game. These kids have come up with like training since they were young training all summer. They had one piece sticks and proper flex their whole lives. Um, they're starting to do some things in a different way. And I think it's good for the evolution of hockey. It seems like a safer game. Uh, scoring is up. And, you know, for me, there's, there's really no negatives to, to what's happening. So it's just a, a really fun time in the NHL, which is also great to hear that it doesn't sound like there's any intention of a future labor stoppage. If you could keep this momentum going, I think it would be huge for the game. All right, one last thing. I'll let you out of here on this. We kind of talked about, what interested you in the first 40 games? I know you're excited to see how the deadline plays out. Besides that, what are the stories you'll be tracking personally the most in the next 40 games as we close in on the playoffs? Well, for, for me, I have my own biases. And one of my favorite things about sports media today is um, getting to be honest enough that you care about things in particular. And I think in the past it was like, you know, no cheering in the press box. And I still support that concept. But I have my horses, you know, which is the New York Islanders who just continue to surge uh, in the East. And can they make some noise? The Toronto Maple Leafs seem to be going through some malaise. But, you know, I work for the organization. And I want to see um, if they're able to sort of figure things out. Uh, and then, they, as you mentioned, the Canadian teams, can, uh, can Winnipeg or Calgary, you know, can they make some noise? So 
Um, everything that I'm watching for is completely self-motivated and narcissistic, but that's just where I, I'm at. <laughs> I like it. Uh, Justin writes for The Athletic. Uh, he's a senior writer there. Why don't you uh, lay out any other plugs you want to Twitter, uh, where people can read you, watch you, all those things. Yeah, yeah, The Athletic, um, you know, The Athletic uh, NHL. Also, my Twitter handle is at JTBorn. And uh, you can listen to me every Monday on uh, Sportsnet Fan 590 at 3 o'clock. Justin, this was fun. Thanks for taking us down uh, memory lane through your hockey development and talking a little bit of NHL with me. Uh, Hopefully we can do it again soon. For sure, man. Thanks for having me. All right, I want to thank Justin Bourne and Richard Deitch for being on Season 9, Episode 2 of the Sportscasters. You can find this episode and all episodes of our podcast on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And you can email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Don't forget my friend Peter Winston, who I want to congratulate on 100 episodes of the Greetings from Allentown podcast. You can find more information about Peter's podcast at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. And Peter and I will be recording another episode of the Adams Division podcast. We rank the Royal Rumbles from 1988 to 1999. Uh, so look for that. I will be promoing that uh, in the coming weeks. That's all the plugs for today. I want to move this along. And one last thing is going to be short. I did promise some thoughts on the Saints and Rams NFC Championship game. And I'm going to be honest, I walked away from that broken um, as a sports fan. The Saints had opportunities to win the game. They played really well early and didn't score enough points. They gave up a fake punt to let the Rams back in it. But they put themselves in position uh, with the Drew Brees to tag Ginn Pass to earn one first down and be able to kick a chip shot field goal at the buzzer to win the NFC. And they did everything right, except for on third down, uh, there was a pass interference penalty that wasn't called that I've yet to find anyone say wasn't pass interference, including the player who committed it, who said he got beat and wanted to prevent a touchdown and absolutely interfered with the play. Look at last year when the Saints lost to the Vikings I felt similar, but I felt like we got beat, that they made a play and they beat us. And as devastating as it was, it happened and I could accept it. This is hard to accept. It's harder to accept being cheated. And I'm not going to call my lawyer and I'm not going to sue and I'm going to try to get over it. And I'm going to look forward to next year, which could be the last one with Drew. And I'm going to be grateful for what was a really fun season. Uh, But I'm really going to be upset that we don't get a chance at Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. Uh, It felt like a long time that the destiny was a Breeze and Brady Super Bowl. Felt like we were building to it. And it's not going to happen. Look, I'm going to have to find a way to deal with it and accept it. And I have said for a long time that it's the bad about sports that makes the good so good. And if 12 months from now... We're talking about Drew Brees possibly playing his last ever game in a Super Bowl and walking off a champion like John Elway. Uh, Maybe that'll make everything that's happened the last two years worth it. 
Uh, but right now I can't help but just feel broken as a sports fan. Uh, but uh, what are you going to do? Go Patriots, I guess. Oh uh-huh.